You're about to listen to an episode of Legally Fonds. This episode is brought to you in association with LawSchool.ie. LawSchool.ie is Ireland's leading provider of tuition for the FE1 or King's Inns entrance exams. Each course is delivered live online with a specific exam focus and supported by the latest manuals. Shorter, pre-recorded workshops are also available and courses commence every year in June and November. Register anytime at lawschool.ie and for a 10% discount on any course, just use the discount code LEGALLYFOND. You're listening to Legally Fond. This episode is supported by Catherine Apello. Inspiration and wellness in one site. Looking for inspiration, advice, and great aromatherapy and related products? If you are looking for a place to be inspired by a blog, the arts, and to find quality products, then visit www.catherineapello-inspiration.com. See you there. In this episode of Legally Fond, we speak about one of the most significant powers that the Irish president can use. And we chat about a case which is particularly topical, given the current housing crisis. Should the state be able to buy homes from developers at lower prices than the market rate, so that these homes can be used for social housing? This is Season 2, Episode 11 of Legally Fond. Michael D. Higgins, the President of Ireland. He has garden parties, he has one lovely dog called Broad, that's after Sheeta, his other Bernie's Mountain dog, passed away in September, RIP, in our thoughts and hearts. And he meets lots of dignitaries from around the world. But you may have wondered, what powers does the Irish president actually have? Well, according to the Constitution, he appoints the Taoiseach, he may dissolve the Dáil if the Taoiseach ceases to retain a majority, and he can speak to the Houses of the Oireachtas on a matter of public importance. Now, you might have seen a statement a number of weeks ago from our president, Michael D. Higgins, stating that he was going to sign into law the Mother and Baby Homes Bill, and he wasn't going to refer it to the Supreme Court. Well, here's the thing. The president has to sign every bill that goes through the Oireachtas into law. Now, he can do something called an Article 26 reference. This refers to Article 26 of the Constitution. And it involves the president, acting on the advice of the Council of State, referring a bill to the Supreme Court if he or she thinks that that bill might be unconstitutional. So the court hears arguments about the bill as to whether it is or it isn't constitutional and then makes a decision. If the bill is found to be unconstitutional, it can't be passed into law. If the bill is found to be constitutional, then it's all hunky-dory and it becomes law. Now, there are two main reasons why this might be controversial. Firstly, once the bill is referred to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court look at it and decide that it is all okay and it's constitutional, then when this law is actually in operation, it can never be challenged again by any other citizen. Secondly, there's no plaintiff. There's no individual coming into court saying, this piece of law is affecting me in a particular way, or is breaching my rights, or is unconstitutional because it does this, that, or the other. In effect, the court has to debate hypothetically how the law might act and how it might affect people if it actually goes into operation. We're quite lucky that we have a benign political climate in Ireland. I think if this power was available to the President of the United States, for instance, given that the Supreme Court in the States is politically appointed and very politically partisan in its decision-making, then it might be a very strong power to stymie any legislation or any reform that came through Congress. But this doesn't tend to happen in Ireland. Michael D. Higgins has not actually referred any bills to the Supreme Court while he's been President, and Article 26 tends not to be used as a political weapon. 
So that's what an Article 26 reference is. We hope we cleared that up. Now, the case we're discussing today is one of those. Alex, talk about the law that was referred to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court discussed this bill, which essentially allowed on board Planola, the planning authority in Ireland, to purchase at a lower price a certain percentage of housing developments over a certain size. So this didn't apply to um, anything less than four houses. Like So these were generally targeted at very large developments and the housing or the Umbro Panola could take up to 20% of those houses to allocate for, you know, social and affordable housing to people who were eligible because of, you know, financial needs, they couldn't afford rent or they couldn't afford to buy their own house. So quite a noble cause. And this was referred to the Supreme Court by Mary McAleese. Um, if we flash back to 1999, it was Bertie Ahern who in power. He just won his... Um, was it his first election in 97? Yeah. So he just won his first election in 97. So let's think about it. You know, Ireland on the cusp of the Celtic Tiger. We're all getting ready to party. But anyways. The government appoints barristers to come in and argue the case. And as we've said, there's no plaintiff. There's no individual coming into court who is claiming that their rights have been affected by this. But it's almost like a debate style. They're given the side of the argument and they're told, come up with arguments for why this might be constitutional and on the government side come up for arguments for why this isn't unconstitutional or should remain as a law. So what are the kind of arguments that were brought up? So one of the things they said was that it gave too much discretion to the planning authorities and said that, you know, this was almost an art, like and picking 20% was arbitrary, that you could, you'd basically be punishing individuals for failures of bad past housing policy. Um, you know, and this... A number of the arguments they said, actually, when you read the judgment, I thought were quite good, really. Well, you'd expect that from two senior councils. But um, this only targeted property developments. It didn't actually target other issues such as um, land left... developments. Commercial developments. Land left derelict as well. If somebody just hoarded land, this didn't affect them at all. And, you know, they say that, you know, that... You can imagine it has an impact on the market that if you just punish residential developments, then more money is going to be in commercial developments. And ironically, the bill might be, you know, ineffective. It might not achieve what it sets out to achieve, which is build more residential developments. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think a lot of the language that's used, and this was an argument that was advanced, it's quite vague. It says to facilitate the purchase of houses by people who would otherwise not be in a position to buy houses as as well as a number of specific categories of person or individual who the state deemed were, were in need of, of, of accessible or affordable housing. But um, eligible persons is a, is a very generic term that's used as well as an imprecise definition of uh, accommodation needs. And, and I think this gives or it was argued anyway that this gave a, a lot of latitude and discretion to the planning authority in, in determining who got these houses and, and, and why they got them. The article of the Constitution, which is primarily the subject of this case, is Article 43, which deals with private property rights. And Article 43 acknowledges that everyone has the natural right to own private property, that the state cannot pass any law to abolish the right of private ownership. However... Uh, the private property rights should be regulated in relation to social justice and in relation to the the demands of the common good. So it gives 
the government a certain degree of discretion to infringe on people's private property rights where they're advancing some broader societal objective, which is what the government were arguing in this case. The government were saying we're providing housing for those people who need it and who can't afford it in the form of social housing, and we're trying to avoid ghettoization. So we're trying to have a mix of tenants and owners from different backgrounds and different socioeconomic circumstances living together. They're good objectives. I think, though, which is kind of interesting for a constitutional case, was that the arguments made to strike the bill down were kind of attacking the quality of the bill, but not necessarily its constitutionality. I guess, but like, you know, discussing how how it was arbitrary and... You know, uh, then when I went on to discuss how people were compensated, you know, discussing how it affects the housing market isn't really isn't really an issue for the constitution. The private property is the issue for the constitution. So as much as you know, as persuasive as I find it, and maybe how ineffective the bill, well, has been, considering, let's face it, you know, well, I'm going to be living at home till I'm about thirty. They had a point, but it wasn't in relation to constitutional law. It was in relation to the effectiveness of the bill. Yeah, I think what you raise is a good point. I think we all probably agree that social housing is a necessary feature of our society. It's been common since the 20th century in the UK and Ireland, and it's this idea that, you know, those who can't afford housing should be given assistance by the state and be given accommodation of some sort. How the government achieves that is the real debate, though. Do you engage in these massive public housing projects where you have whole suburbs of a city just dedicated to social housing? Or do you aim to have a more mixed approach, again, which this bill was aiming to do, to have tenants from different socioeconomic backgrounds living together? I think think that's the kind of um, Red Vienna model of housing whereby you have it made accessible to people of varying incomes and varying professional lifestyles, etc., etc., whereby you have, number one, a vibrant mix of different demographics and different sections of society living together, but also it means that people who can afford to pay more do pay more, and this results in a kind of continuous funding of, of development of social housing, even in times of recession. And I think it comes down to, as well, the difference between us and the rest of Europe in the social ho- social housing model is this obsession with ownership as opposed to renting, um, which I think is 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 very damaging. Um, and I I think it's something that seems to be inherently Irish as well that we have to own a house rather than just rent. Now of course that kind of seems to make some bit of sense in Dublin at present when rent is is so unsustainably high for people that why would I be paying a grand a month? when I, I, I could be sitting on a house that, that would maintain or retain its value and would be some form of investment as opposed to just throwing money away that I'm never going to get back. From the property developer's perspective here, I'm building houses. I, I'm building a housing estate with 100 houses. With this legislation, the government can come to me and buy 20 of those houses, but not pay me full price. Pay me, the. in many cases, according to this bill, it, it varied on when the person owned the land, but it was the agricultural rates for the land which is what the land would have been worth before it was designated as being a, a an area where which was going to have planning permission for housing why should the state get away with paying property developers less than what the houses are worth reasons for of social justice and common good i think is the like that itself isn't unconstitutional i think there's a quote um from justice walsh from dreher d-r-e-h-e-r versus the irish land commission and it says it is not net it does not necessarily follow that the market value of lands at any given time is equivalent of just compensation, um, as there may be circumstances where it would be considerably less 
um, for a just compensation. And I, like, you know, the government takes land all the time for various things. Like for the Port Tunnel, they had to buy land off people whose houses were above it because you own all the land straight down to the centre of the earth. They, it's justified. Like, maybe they shouldn't get away with it, but I guess the issue... Out of just fairness, if the government is taking land off you, surely they should pay you the the market price, the fair price that everyone else is expected to pay for the same bit of land. But that would be unsustainable because ultimately we're going to pay for it anyway. Like the taxpayer is paying for it. What, so we need to get good value for money for the yeah, taxpayer? Yeah, basically. So... Well, yes. If you're the state, you might as well, you know, abuse your power. But and you see, this one. is not the only means of achieving it's, social right. housing. The, the council or the planning board could build houses themselves as opposed to having to go to the like I just think this is it's lazy legislation it's lazy legislation it's eschewing the state's responsibility to provide houses for people who need them but it does oh let's just let someone else do the building and we'll come in at the last minute it does no it does no because this is promotes the thing that we were saying earlier that instead of you know creating like segregated portions of society based solely on income you have a more integrated society that's a good thing but it fails to also have any regard for the uh, financial circumstances of the developer as well and the economic climate. Um, and as well, it seems that th- this bill takes no account into, let's say, th- there's no payments for any improvement of the quality of, la- of the land that the developer might have done in terms of utilities, drainage, um, fibre optic access, whatever the case may be. It, like you say, if it's a kind of a flat agricultural rate for the land, then there's, there's, there's a disincentive on the behalf of the developer to actually improve it and make it better well, yeah, for people to live there. But it, it means the property developers just won't bother. Like they'll which, just go, well, which means now, not only if you stifled a very important section of the Irish economy, i.e. construction and development, you've now less houses as well. Yeah, and because... the government's doing nothing about it. So it seems to be very, very counterintuitive. On the sur- yeah, on the surface, it kind of like it's sort of an, it's a nice idea of okay, we'll just take twenty percent of prior developments, but then, but you create a disincentive to go into building residential units. Then, yes, you you incentivize people to build business parks the, or whatever commercial. If you're, stuff if you're that... building business parks and you don't get twenty percent of it taken away, yeah, exactly. It's why would you bother? Common sense dictates that you should do that if Unless you're rational. The yeah. price of private housing gets so high that you can take the 20% hit and then you've got people stuck in the middle where you know they're not earning extraordinary amounts of money to buy the extraordinarily expensive private housing and but you're not doing bad enough to get the social housing or it just pushes more people into that bracket and then 20% isn't enough. Now it could be argued in certain economic circumstances that this bill actually provides an incentive for developers to build houses because builders know that a certain percentage of their houses, maybe up to 20%, will be bought by the state and used as social housing. This is kind of a guaranteed revenue stream for them. So why, why, aren't, why aren't there public tenders to build, uh, to just build houses and not houses that are, I mean, house, houses that should be affordable, but houses that are accessible to everybody, that, that it's not just, like I said, it's a, it's a demographic mix where, where it's not stigmatised whereby it's only a certain class uh, within society or a certain type of person who has to avail of social housing that social housing isn't a dirty word that people young families young professionals students anybody so that you have a healthy normal communal mix uh, within it as opposed to like you say the kind of ghettoization whereby you have a disastrous complex of, of flats like Ballymun no amenities um, poorly designed you know it it it, it, it it baffles me why why the Irish government doesn't have this this incentive to to create normalised, uh, evenly distributed social housing. In Singapore, most people don't own their apartments; they rent them off the, 
Well, they buy a lease off the Singaporean government. Same in China, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a ninety-nine-year lease or something like yeah, that. It's I don't know. Yeah, it's ninety-nine-year lease. It's a kind of it's it goes back and forth because I guess if like if you have this and the government interferes in the market to create a disincentive to to build houses, then that'll have a, you know that'll have its own effects. But then and then yeah, if the government goes in and starts building loads of social houses, it could undermine the value of everybody else's house because then there's more more demand. But especially in a city, the government is a loss-making enterprise in the sense that like public transport. You know, you don't expect it to make money. It's not run for profit. Social housing, you don't expect it to make money. It's not run for profit. Yeah, that's why I, but yeah. I also think we're the only country in the world where we have this where we have this delusion that high property prices, high house prices is a good thing and a reflection of a well-working economy. Nobody it's thinks not. that. I don't think no, that. The only reason people thought that is the vested interest. The people who were the bank managers who were selling the mortgages on expensive properties they were getting bigger bonuses the estate agents who were getting bigger commission the people who had bought second houses as investments who were then flipping them and selling them on they were all the people who stood to benefit were, were saying those things not the people who were trying to get onto the property ladder um and and struggling but yeah i agree with you alex the government steps in where there's market failures where it's not profitable for the market to to provide the products or whatever it is. The barristers again made a good point that this is, you know, this bill would just punish developers because of bad housing policy a while ago and they should just spend the money and do it, like, and fix it rather than punishing individual developers. Like, this is the, like, this is the bill that, or that does that, really. It, it affects, the, you know, individuals acting in that market arbitrarily. Let's go back to the issue of compensation here. Now, in most cases, these developers were going to be paid the agricultural land rates for the land that they had developed, not the market land rates. In other words, not the price that these houses were being sold for on the open market by estate agents. The argument that was made by the government was as follows. This is what they said to the developers. Your land used to be agricultural land. It didn't have planning permission to build houses on it, and therefore it was worth less money because it generated less potential economic returns. This is because you generally make more money out of building and selling houses than you do out of using the land for farming. Then we, as the state and the planning board, rezoned the land, in other words, allowed there to be houses built on it, giving planning permission for houses, and this increased the value of the land overnight. This is kind of an artificial legal thing, which all of a sudden increases the value of the land. Essentially, the government then are arguing... We reclassified your land. In doing that, its value increased. Now we get to pay you what it was worth before it was reclassified, if that makes sense. The government, by rezoning something, has created an artificial benefit Mm. and a change in the demand for something. And because the government has given, you know, has, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. So because it gave it to you, it could take it back. Like, that's the sort of, that's... yeah. Yeah, but the artificial benefit is only a value if you have private actors to actually uh, exploit it in in the sense that they make value of of that change of status. Um, if the government wants to necessarily because the land itself can be sold on, to... you don't actually have to build build on the land. Let's say you own the plot of land; it's rezoned to for residential use. Just the value of the site, even if there's nothing built on it, is going to jump way up because some property developer is going to want. How much is something worth? Something is worth. 
basically how much somebody else is willing, willing to pay to for pay, it. Yeah. It seems arbitrary to just, and again, like, where do they get 20% of some sort of fair figure? Like, what's the, you know, 20% of the lower rate of tax here on income? Well, this is not the extra twenty two percent. They're getting paid money by the government. They're getting compensated. Yeah, but I agree. Yeah, twenty percent is very arbitrary, and it's going to it's up to twenty percent. So it's and but twenty percent if you're building a hundred houses, twenty of those houses, you know, that's a significant portion. And the more people lose money, the less likely they are to do something or not make as much money. And these kind of things, especially, are especially relevant in cities, in big cities, like you know, as much as. Like, Dublin City is the worst in Ireland for house prices and rent prices. It's one of the worst in Europe. It, it's, so, it's, it's pretty it's, bad. Um, but look, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of also, like, geographic and kind of relief issues with, with the city of Dublin. Um, it, it is a hundred times more spread out than a European city of its equivalent population. It is incredibly spread out. And this is, goes back to perhaps another issue in that there is, we, you, you can't build up in 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 Dublin that you, there is a ban on skyscrapers so as a result then you you your usage of land is is limited to to a kind of a ground floor plot in 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 regards that you can't build above a certain floor level if if you could if you could build like any metropolitan capital city within Europe upwards then it would you'd get more bang for your buck because you'd be able to build more houses, you'd be able to build more flats and apartments, and 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 you would also reduce the amount of space you would need for the same number of houses. Doesn't that make sense? It does. But it's this idea of protecting Gandon's Dublin from a certain sector of society, which is quite well off anyway, probably probably living in South Dublin with their nice Georgian or Victorian red brick terraced houses, and they say, "Well, I don't want my skyline to be ruined by." A project that would actually house a lot of young professionals, house a lot of young families, and house a lot of people who uh, are deserving of houses and who are actually on the street at the moment. I don't know. I don't think Canary Wharf houses very many. You know, has very mm. very much social housing. Like as much as yes, I agree. Like more density seems like a good idea. But it's important that there's a democratic element to the the planning process that people can vote, even if they have frivolous concerns of I don't like the eyesore when I look out my window every morning. The eyesore of the skyscraper. You know, I like at, that at least they have stuff. a platform to voice their concerns but, but because skyscrapers look cool. Dublin city belongs to everyone who lives in it. Like and that's what people build in Lego. They don't Lego don't build up like you know two up two down. Like they build you know if you're building Lego, you build a skyscraper. Like that's like that's what you're going for. I I hope the the, the officials in the Lego planning houses. authority yeah <laughs> aren't playing with Lego all day. Here's right. a good question: Did it work? This is twenty years ago. You generally have to wait a, a while for you know housing policy to have an effect did it work no no and so part of the problem is though the the councils or and the the planning board doesn't have the money doesn't actually have the budget to buy they had loads of of money we were borrowing loads of cash in the early 2000s it was great fun apparently problem is we were born too late to see it the council has money for the the white water uh, rafting facility and no money for like social housing this is challenged on Property rights in the Constitution, the uh, provision that says everybody is equal before the law in the Constitution, and dedication of powers to the planning authority. Basically, the case is made that um, the planning authority had just too much discretion in these kind of decisions. And all three failed, really. Um, The property rights of any potential developer weren't infringed. You don't have to pay the market price. Um, on in terms of equality before the law, which ties in with the 
kind of vagueness of whoever is eligible wasn't deemed to be sufficient because it was, you know, in pursuit of social justice or the common goods. Um, and that fell in with the delegation of power to the planning authority, which also was not unconstitutional. Good idea. Bad bill, considering, well, you know, we're all going to be living at home for the next while. Or well, I, don't th- I, don't, I don't think we're the fall into the categories of individuals or families who should be availing of social housing. But I think certainly for, I mean, it's, it's, it's evident if you walk down any street in Dublin how how large scale the the homeless crisis is uh, and and the failure on the government to provide uh, i mean there's plenty of houses in ireland housing crisis and homeless crisis are different just saying i think for yes i mean uh, there is no housing crisis in 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 the sense i mean we have enough houses in ireland we don't have enough houses in ireland we do have no, enough we they have say, enough they houses. say we need to be building 30 or 40,000 houses a year uh, which we're not building we're building half that? that like, so we do, we do not have but enough. interest rates are like negative houses. which means that there's no return in them which means that more people are going to buy property and I know that people kind of use legally fund as an escape from the coronavirus but the commercial property market has tanked in Dublin because everybody's working from home shops are closed but um, if you're people lar- are working from home if you're a large yeah. company why would you pay the extraordinary amount of rates and rent for central Dublin property when whether it's Google or Facebook now looking at well why would we have anybody in the office unless they absolutely need there's food for thought that's it for this episode of Legally Fond we hope we taught you a little bit about the president's powers if you enjoyed the podcast please tell a friend please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts for which we'd be most grateful and next week's episode I'm very sorry to say is the final episode in season 2 of Legally Fond it absolutely flew by for us hopefully you enjoyed the season Thanks for listening.